Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 497 of the podcast. It's January 31st, 2024. Today, we are talking about healthcare, patient safety, process in the MRI space in radiology. We're joined by an expert in that field, uh, Tobias Gilk. You'll learn more about him in a minute. If you work in lean healthcare, I think there's a lot that this episode offers that will benefit you and your organization and your patients. If you don't work in healthcare, I, ho- I hope you'll listen because the, the things we're talking about here today could affect you or a family member as a patient. Um, there's there's uh, big opportunities, some big frustrations about patient safety or, or sometimes the lack thereof in MRI and beyond. So uh, I think a really interesting episode today. You can learn more about Tobias and his consulting group. You can find links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 497. Our guest today is Tobias Gilk, the founder of Gilk Radiology Consulting. He is, and we're going to learn a lot more about him and his work here, but he is an architect by training, but he spent more than 20 years focusing on MRI safety in healthcare, of course, initially through the architecture and planning of MRI facilities, but then quickly growing into the technology, clinical practice, regulation, and economics of MRI safety. He's recognized by state and federal courts as an expert in MRI safety issues. He's published dozens of papers and articles on MRI safety. He's also twice a member of the American College of Radiology's MRI Safety Committee and twice named co-author of the ACR MCI Safety Standard Guidance. So, uh, Toby, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing really well. Um, I'm excited that we we can talk here today. Um, I've I know your name. I've seen followed your LinkedIn posts um, a long time through a mutual friend, um, Dave DeBroncart, ePatient Dave. So I'll I'll give him I'll give him credit for sharing and and liking and and commenting on all the things you've shared. Um, how, how how do you know ePatient Dave? Um, well the the patient advocate domain of, of folks who are interested in patient safety and and more than just interested in it, you know, influential in patient safety, that's a very small list. Um, and um, e-patient Dave is, is a force of nature. Um, Dave is amazing. Um, and I have, ever since I became aware of him, oh goodness, what would that be? Maybe 10 years ago or so. Um, I've I've just tried to follow him uh, because I'm always impressed with his positive approach to, you know, identifying and then addressing problems in in the healthcare arena, and and I've taken that a, a little bit as an inspiration for for my own work. I know that generally speaking, what he focuses on and what I focus on, the Venn diagrams of those two things don't really overlap, other than they're they're both in healthcare. Um, but I, I'm so appreciative of number one, a patient voice, and number two, you know, his you know, let's work the problem approach to everything. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I met Dave through. I, he was invited to sit in on some lean training that I was doing um, for a hospital at Boston, and and we realized the Venn diagram of things we care about. Um, there's 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 a lot of overlap, and you know, for the episode here today. Um, for those listening, I mean, this is the Lean Blog Interviews podcast. I don't know if the word lean is going to come up again the rest of the discussion. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, that's fine. But, you know, I think part of the overlap of of the work that you do, Toby, and, and what I'm interested in talking about today and sharing um, with the listener is themes of patient safety, talking about process, talking about prevention, um, you know, how, how do how do we learn and 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 help ensure the safest possible environment for patients well and, and staff I, I i should you know should make sure it's, it's also about um staff safety and, and it's a great pick, uh, chance to pick your brain on all of that toby but you know um i'm, I'm curious before and, and maybe this is part of the story of how you got in 
um, to this work. Uh, I want to hear about that and the issues that you've learned about and help people address. But you know, for those who aren't really familiar or those of us who barely know what MRI stands for, could could you give us kind of a quick technology over the over um, overview of the technology and and what about it creates risk to staff sure. and patients? So I became enamored of MRI technology um, because I think it's the closest thing to magic that human beings have ever built. Um, MRI machines are just phenomenally interesting. Um, so the basics of MRI is we put you in a high strength magnetic field and then we thump you with additional applied time varying magnetic fields um, that we sort of send these pulses of magnetism at you. And the combination of the high strength always on magnetic field plus these magnetic field pulses that we send allows us to collect signal from whatever's in the middle of the MRI scanner, right? And through very sophisticated computers, we can take the, the cacophony of signal that comes out of your tissues and we can slice it and dice it and wind up producing pictures. Well, that's great. We can do, you know, we can come up with pictures if we're doing x-rays, right? So why is MRI different from doing an x-ray or a CT, which is essentially just a whole bunch of x-rays stitched together by a computer? Um, what makes MRI really interesting is that it's looking at the emitted signal of each molecule and each molecule like uh, spectroscopy, right? We can, we can, filter the light from a distant star through a spectroscope, and we can identify what the chemical composition of that star is, right? MRI is very similar in that because we're looking at signal that originates from each and every molecule, we can essentially chemically fingerprint the, the materials that, that are giving off signal, which means if you have a brain tumor, for example, in many cases, the brain tumor is essentially just sort of the brain's own tissue that has gone haywire in, in reproduction, right? So if you took an x-ray of it, how is the x-ray or the CT going to differentiate between brain tissue and crazy reproducing brain tissue? Because they're the same thing, right? Except crazy reproducing brain tissue has a slightly different chemical signature. Um, and so if we can image based on the, the chemical fingerprint of individual molecules, we can begin to differentiate, hey, wait a second, no, that's that's the unhealthy tissue, that's the healthy tissue. Um, and so we can make differentiations primarily where, where some of the greatest benefit of MRI comes from is in soft tissue differentiation. So we see MRI used an awful lot for um, brain imaging, um, soft tissue differentiation, um, but it also has uses everywhere else. It's it's amazing for inflammation and cartilage and, and other non-bony tissues um, being able to, to identify. So we're finding applications for MRI you know, all throughout the body, all different anatomical regions and disease processes and that sort of thing. Um, it's it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. And if you want to geek out like I do um, on sort of the physics behind all of this, mm -hmm. it's just, it's mind-blowing science, like mm -hmm. I say, closest thing to, to magic I think human beings have ever built. Mm. And so it's uh, a, a technology that doesn't expose the patient or the operator of the MRI to the same type of radiation that we would be exposed to by x-ray. Is that correct? Right. So, so x-ray radiation, um, and again, x-rays are used in CT scanners, and then there's nuclear medicine where we're using radioactive isotopes. That whole grouping of imaging technologies utilize what's called ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation is what can cause damage to cellular reproduction, right? MRI uses magnetism. Magnetism is non-ionizing radiation, right? Still electromagnetic radiation, just 
you know, as as X-rays are electromagnetic radiation, but based on where it falls in the electromagnetic spectrum, magnetism doesn't have enough energy to cause the chromosomal damage that that can lead to, you know, crazy reproduction, cancers, that sort of thing. So, when MRI first came about clinically. 40 years ago, plus or minus, um, we were very concerned with ionizing radiation. We were really beginning to kind of wrap our arms around what the effects of medical levels of um, radiation exposure were. And we had concerns about that. And at that time, MRI comes upon the scene and MRI says, hey, guys, I know you're worried about this ionizing radiation thing. Guess what? We invented an entirely new imaging modality that doesn't use ionizing radiation. So the thing that you're worried about, this doesn't have at all. And everybody was like, that's fantastic. Let's let's use MRI. The, The problem is that in the moment, I don't think anybody asked the follow on question, which to my mind is well if you don't have the risks that we're we've been historically worried about do you have any new or different risks that you know we should be aware of that we should prospectively respond to that part of the question was never really asked and has to date, to date never been asked in a regulatory or licensure framework um mri came into the world with the the marketing or PR slogan of the safe modality um, and has really sort of ridden that PR campaign all the way up into the future. Now, generally speaking, MRIs um, can be extraordinarily safe, right? We have professionally identified what the risks are and what the best practices are to mitigate those risks. Um, MRIs generate extremely powerful uh, magnetic fields, and anybody who spends 15 minutes on Google can find all kinds of, you know, amazing and laugh and point and giggle kind of uh, questions, photos of um, things that have gone flying at MRI scanners. Those photos beg a lot of questions then, and we'll get into all of that. (laughs) Yes. and projectile accidents are indeed one of the most significant risks in the MRI environment. Now, obviously, if we just screen things and people before they go into the room, or we make things out of metals for the MRI suite that don't go flying, we can effectively manage those risks. But projectile risks are not the only ones. Um, the magnetism, whether it's the the always-on magnetic field or the the extra applied magnetic fields that happen during imaging, they can interfere with implants and medical devices, right? So we might cause your pacemaker or your implanted insulin pump to malfunction. Um, And that malfunctioning pacemaker or insulin pump or other device might cause you harm as a result of the fact that it had this negative interaction with the MRI scanner. The energies that we superimpose on the always-on magnetic field also all of that stuff winds up getting converted into heat inside your body. If you've ever had an MRI, a lot of times you'll start out feeling like, you know, the room that they put the MRI in is a meat locker, right? It's just yeah, so they, cold when you walk in there. They throw a blanket on you. Your MRI scanner, you swear to God that somebody just sort of dialed the thermostat up, you know, 20 degrees. The room temperature is exactly the same. The the thing is, is that the MRI procedure inputs energy into your body and that energy gets converted into heat. Now, generally speaking, it's diffused, right? You know, you come out feeling warm or maybe even sweaty, uncomfortably hot, but not harmed. But there are certain mechanisms by which um, the, the thermal energy that gets put into your body winds up getting focused or concentrated into small areas instead of, you know, broadly sprinkled over your body. And then we can actually produce burns. Would, 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 would that be a machine malfunction or a, a mistake in how it's set up to cause so a burn? There are MRI machine malfunctions, but they are so vanishingly rare um, that in, in any big picture conversation of MRI safety, they're almost you know, not even worth raising, right? In 99% of the MRI accidents, 
It involves the failure to identify a potential contraindication, right? The patient had something with them, in them, on them that, that made this, you know, potential risk come into being, right? Or we failed to effectively position the patient or pad the patient just as one example. And there are a few different ways that we can actually wind up producing a burn in an MRI. But one of the more common ways is the the transmitters of some of that radio frequency electromagnetic energy actually are behind the walls of the tube. Um, and when you are really, really close to the transmitter, um, it actually behaves something like a microwave oven. There's what's called a dipole-dipole interaction. It excites water molecules, and the water molecules can heat up. So in most MRI scanners, the, the manufacturer, the Siemens's, the GE's, the Philips, the Canons of the world, they say, you know what? When you slide the patient in, just make sure that they're not right next to the walls of the tube, right? If if it's a skinny person, great. Just have them keep their arms close to their torso. You know, if it's a bigger person, right, put some padding in there and just make sure they don't get too close. Because if, if your shoulders or your elbows or whatever get too close to the walls of the tube, those might get a disproportionate amount of the energy, the electromagnetic energy, and maybe in, you know, maybe close enough where it's acting like a microwave, right? And it cooks some of the water um, under your skin. Um, so we understand the overwhelming majority of how these accidents occur. We, we understand the mechanics of, of how injury is produced, right? And as a result, we can look to existing best practices and say, this best practice interrupts this pathway of causation, right? This blocks off one of the Swiss cheese layers if we do this, right? The problem is that those best practices are not mandatory. They're not requirements. So the US FDA they only regulate point of care for one radiology device, mammography. In the United States, it, it literally takes an act of Congress to get the FDA to regulate point of care safety. Um, and through Mammography Quality and Standards Act, the U.S. government essentially gave the FDA power to regulate point of care for mammography. They have not received authority to regulate point of care for any other radiologic imaging um, device. So the FDA doesn't regulate it nationally. States largely have bought into the MRI is the safe modality and therefore we don't need to regulate it mindset. And the regulator, excuse me, the, the accrediting organizations um, by and large have kind of been hands-off, laissez-faire about the whole thing. So it comes down to the individual provider for the overwhelming majority of the preventions as to whether they mm -hmm. want to do it or not. So, uh, so what I hear you saying is the equipment in and of itself could be generally considered safe, but there could be process problems. I mean, I think of times when I've had a lower back MRI, I was asked questions. There was a checklist that would seem to be one of the procedural things to make sure that um, I left my, uh, I didn't have any metallic implants or I didn't have any heavy metal objects with me right. uh, in, in Texas. I mean, I don't carry a gun, but it seems like they need to very, very strictly screen and make sure that somebody realizes they can't bring their gun near the MRI. Right. I mean, these I mean, there are process problems that could lead to harm. And I'm thinking most I, I've learned something here about that heat impact. I was thinking mostly of these dramatic photos of, of items being sucked into. And I know it's not suction, but pulled, drawn into the magnet, right. which could be I mean, I think there have been cases of guns, like maybe a security guard or police officer has a gun, metallic poles, beds, other items like that. Could you tell, right. could you share some of those examples or at least kind of like a typical case study of the, the danger of, you know, a metallic object being pulled into the magnet? Sure. Um, 
there just a few weeks ago there was um a a a case made public, I think it happened um, last year, of a woman who went into an MRI scanner with a concealed firearm. Um, and the magnet pulled the pistol from her. Um, and there really isn't enough detail to understand. The magnetism can act on the inner workings, the mechanics of the firing of a pistol. And so you can the magnetism can actually force the pistol to fire or it can go flying and it can you know hit the face of the MRI scanner and that impact or shock can cause it to discharge around so we don't know exactly what the mechanisms were of it you know discharging around but it actually shoots the woman in the butt um shoots her through the buttock mm. um you know which I, I I laugh because the only other alternative is to cry um, that we have these process breakdowns that allow these kinds of accidents to occur. Um, uh, several months prior, another pistol, not in the United States this time, but this was in Brazil. Um, a, a man, who I believe, was accompanying his mother or his mother-in-law into the MRI room, fills out the screening form. No, I don't have any metal. Walks in, has a concealed pistol, goes flying, shoots him. Um, in the back, and he winds up dying of the injuries. Um, but pistols are far and away, uh, you know, not the only thing that that goes flying. There was a case last year of um, a hospital in California where an ICU nurse brought the ICU bed with the patient on top into the MRI scanner, um, and then the MRI scanner is sitting at one end of the room, and the nurse is coming in with the bed, and when you cross the magic threshold, um, the magnet is going to grab the bed and it slams the bed against the MRI. The only thing was the nurse was in between. The nurse winds up getting pinned between the bed and the, the magnet. Um, and she su suffered some pretty extensive injuries as a result of that. So each of these incidents are ones where, you know, there is an inherent risk created by the machine and the electromagnetic fields that the machine generates, right? Not because the machine is malfunctioning, quite the opposite, because the machine is functioning exactly the way it's designed to, right? It's generating these electromagnetic fields. If we, as you pointed out, if we do the process the, the prospective risk management process before we bring the people or the equipment materiel into the room, right? We know what the risks are. We know how to, to manage these risks. We just don't do them uniformly. Um, the, um, the two pistol accidents, both of those purportedly were ones where the site gave instructions to the patient visitor um, saying, you know, no metal is allowed in that room, um, but relied on, you know, patient disclosure, you know, yes, I do. No, I don't. I mean, I, I, I can't go into, sorry to interrupt. I can't go into a sporting event without walking through a magnetometer to check to see if I have a gun or a weapon. Exactly. And, and there are, Specially designed, um, they call them ferromagnetic detectors. They're, they are specifically designed to screen for the types of metal that go flying into MRI scanners, right? Which is great because we don't want alerts or alarms on titanium or aluminum or things that aren't going to be attracted to the MRI. Things from which we make a bunch of the stuff that lives in MRI suites, right? But we do want to catch the ICU beds and the pistols and cell phones and God knows what else. Um, so they do have these ferromagnetic detectors. At the hospital where the ICU bed went in, they actually had them. And after the accident occurred, the hospital biomedical engineering department went in and tested them to make sure that they were working as they were supposed to. And they found, sure enough, thumbs up, they're working, which means either the MRI department staff turned them off or um, they just were so inured to the to the alarms um, that they didn't use them as a feedback tool to tell them, 
you're about to make the worst mm. professional decision you've ever made in your life, you know? Yeah, I, I, is there a scenario, I mean, alarm fatigue is discussed a lot in healthcare and probably in other workplaces where people turn off the alarm and they get away with it for a while until something bad happens. Are there, are there times when something verging on a false alarm of, let's say, a small piece of metal sets off the alarm People get frustrated and like, oh, you know what? That like, do they they just get kind of lax? Do you think until then? Sadly, the big piece of metal that you would have wanted to catch does get through. Yes, that does happen, and that is is in my mind that's symptomatic of a less than ideal approach to a feedback tool, right? Lots of lots of sites that have had ferromagnetic detection for MRI pre-screening. Um, somebody essentially shows up, um, attorneys or the risk management department, or or somebody shows up on Monday and says, "We bought this new thing. We're putting it up here. Um, it'll go beep when when something with magnetic metal walks through it." Right, and that's kind of the whole story that the staff winds up getting. Right, and sure enough. You walk through or you approach the thing, you walk through the detector and it goes beep, right? Well, if that was the beginning, middle and end of the here's the tool and here's how to use it explanation, absolutely. That's going to lead to alarm fatigue. Or, um, or I mean, I, I, I think there's also a lesson to be learned around change management. If that's how the new tool is being introduced instead of more fully engaging people and understanding the problem. And how this is a countermeasure, and, and so you know, to me, there's there's adjacent to process problems are often training or communication issues, right? So the sites that take that exact same tool in the exact same position and look at it as this is a feedback tool. This is this is a device to tell us whether all of the things that we think that we're doing effectively and efficiently upstream, right? That we're divorcing our patients and our personnel from, from the, the things that can go flying, right? That's why you have changing rooms, right? That's why we go through this pre-screening process. All of that is essentially geared towards getting to the doorway into the MRI room and being perfectly ready to go in there, right? So if the thing at the doorway alarms, if it goes beep, right, what that should be telling you is not that the thing went beep, what that should be telling you is, hey, wait a second, all of the two or three or 10 or 20 processes that we set to make sure this thing doesn't go beep when the patient arrives, somewhere in that list of, of precursor steps, we didn't do something the way we thought we were going to do, right? And as soon as you start using the machine that goes beep as a feedback tool for your preparation process, now all of a sudden it becomes an extraordinarily valuable safety tool. Um, so it's not the tool as much as it is your willingness to integrate the tool into the process. Right. And so, and and I'll, I'll point people in the show notes to um, your LinkedIn page, Toby, and, and videos and, and, and things that you post. It's been very helpful you know, education for me. And it seems like one of the key risk factors that we need to have good countermeasures for, as you've already touched on, is uh, access control. Varying, uh, you know, spaces nearest, you know, different zones. Is that the right way to say it? Nearest to the MRI and kind of further back where you might have access control. And we're recording this almost a week after uh, the runway incursion, this is going to sound like I'm totally changing topics, but I think there's parallels here. Um, the runway incursion at the Tokyo Haneda airport, Japanese Coast Guard plane was told to taxi and hold, don't enter the runway, you're not clear for takeoff. For reasons yet unknown here on January 8th, that plane ended up on the runway and was hit by a landing JAL um, Airbus. And so, you know, I've talked to a pilot friend of mine and reading the news reports around just, you know, access control and the access controls aren't as strict as 
they maybe could be, right? You know, physical barriers, lights that were stoplights that weren't operational at the moment. And and so whether it's, you know, this question of like, well, who who isn't uh you know uh keeping their eyeballs, paying someone to keep their eyeballs on every single plane versus a hospital, like kind of brute forcing it without technology of like paying someone who's trained well enough to screen the people and items and materials. Like, like, it, like it seems like even without an elegant technology solution, like why, why, why couldn't you just brute force that to prevent, and I'm not saying attack, you know, using force against people, but, you know, using the clumsy, even just costly labor intensive solution if patient safety is always our top priority, as hospitals like to say, why why are these? I think I'm finally getting off, getting around to a question. I got up on my soapbox. Why 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 aren't best practices followed? Yet alone made mandatory. If it's a choice, why is that choice not made? That's that's the sixty four thousand dollar question right there. Um, so one of the challenges is if we look over the last 20, 30 years, what a hospital gets paid for performing one MRI today is probably a fifth, a tenth of, of what it was um, 20, 25 years ago, right? It, 25 years ago, MRI was this ivory tower kind of medical procedure. And the, I guess the negotiating power that hospitals had with the insurance companies was far greater because it was a limited supply of them. Um, and so, you know, they they were making bank off of MRI services. And then huge proliferation of outpatient imaging centers. Essentially, the market gets saturated. Um, and insurance companies now have the negotiating power. And like I say, rates today, just in terms of straight dollars not adjusted for inflation or anything like that, uh, are, are probably um, one-fifth to one-tenth of what they were um, you know, 25 years ago. So there has been this massive squeeze in terms of cost control um, of MRI services and staffing. You know, you know, once you once you take your million and a half dollar cost of the MRI scanner and your half million dollar cost for the specialty construction of an MRI suite, right? You've got all of this fixed cost. Your number one variable cost is staffing, um, and so two things simultaneously happened. One, we wanted to reduce staffing costs, which meant either fewer bodies or less experienced, lower on the wage scale you know, individuals or some combination of those two things. Plus, we want to try and accelerate the number of patients that we put through the machine, right? If we get paid on a per patient per exam basis, and we do more exams, we're going to make more money, right? So simultaneously, we see a reduction in workforce, um, both experience and and just the numbers of individuals sort of you know put to task for this, um, and we have much greater throughput demands. And the the role of the MRI technologist is not just simply to sit back there and you know play Sudoku and hit the go button you know every four minutes. They're also doing lookups for the next patient and juggling schedules because this patient didn't show, or if they're in the hospital, somebody from neurology wants a stat exam on it. So the the in-between times, um, you know, between, you know, Mark, um, we're about to start your next pulse sequence. It's going to last four and a half minutes. You know, they're not twiddling their thumbs for the four and a half minutes that that, that part of the exam is going on. They're attending to... 10 or 20 other things that are sort of competing for their time and attention, right? As we increase throughput, we increase the number of things that are competing for their time and attention. Also, simultaneously, we have seen a marked increase in the levels of both patient acuity and implants, devices, and, and contraindications or complications at, at minimum. Um, that come with the patient to MRI. 25 years ago, 
all of the MRI manufacturers had these big, bold print legal statements in the operator's manual that essentially said, look, under no circumstances do you put any patient who has anything metal with them, in them, on them. You do not put that person inside this magnet. Um, or if you do, you know, we are out. We take zero responsibility. Everything is on you, right? Then they came up with labeling or designation for implants and devices that have been tested and demonstrated to be safe in MRI environment, oftentimes with specific limiting sets of conditions, right? But the FDA said, you guys can't keep putting this disclaimer saying you do not allow any of these patients to be scanned when they have devices that we have, we, the FDA, have said, yes, under that set of circumstances, it's okay to scan this patient. So the manufacturers took those those prohibitions out. Um, good friend of mine, Dr. Canal, who is a neuroradiologist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, he did a study of the UPMC MRI patients across all of their MRIs, so hospitals and outpatient imaging centers, and he found I think the numbers were somewhere between thirty-five and forty percent of all the MRI patients that get imaged in the UPMC system have implants, devices, shrapnel, foreign bodies, uh, dermal piercings, tattoos, or other things that might represent meaningful complications from the safety perspective uh, for the MRI patients. So we have radically changed who our patient cohort is in MRI. So we have the economics that have not worked in the favor of MRI. In response to the economics, we have reduced workforce and increased throughput, and we also concurrently have this change in the, the makeup of our patient population, and the significant proportion of the MRI patient population have these risks and complications and contraindications that didn't exist in the MRI patient population 25, 30 years ago. So all of these factors are sort of coming together as sort of perfect storm kind yeah. of set of circumstances to make the MRI safety environment more challenging today than it ever has been. Yeah. So I, I got, you know, you know, I've done consulting with hospitals, but I'm going to wear the outsider to healthcare hat because I, I guess I can choose. And, you know, I mean, you know, when, uh, last time I was doing consulting work, regularly with a hospital, I walked through a magnetometer every day. It was in a large city. There are sadly shootings that occur, people bringing weapons into the emergency room or into the hospital. And, you know, whether someone installing security, you know, whether that's reactive or or proactive, I, I don't think they're doing an, an ROI statement. They're probably just saying, well, this is a, a sad but necessary cost of doing business. I, I would still just wonder that parallel of like, you know, the staffing costs versus the risk of harm to staff, the risk of damage to the equipment. I mean, you know, I mean, right. some of these incidents, I mean, maybe at, at best throw the machine offline for a period of time, if not damage it. I mean, it's right. just, it's an interesting set of trade-offs, even if someone were only strictly looking at, financial trade-offs. I know, you know, it's human nature. We don't do a good job of gauging risk. <laughs> known yeah. known costs versus potential costs. I got more philosophical than, but it's still, it's just kind of, no, I mean, it's just, it is surprising that it, it, it seems so easy, you know, for people to, to get metal close to the MRI. Maybe, you know, how, let me, let me, I mean, I guess you, you, I can let you react to that, but how many incidents are there a year in the U.S. that cause harm or death, MRI mishaps? Um, death is very few. Death is, you know, a, a very small number, um, probably single digits in any given year. And keep in mind that in the U.S., historically, we've done around 30 million MRI studies per year. So, um, you know, a handful of deaths, while almost all of them tend to be preventable through existing best practices, and right. therefore, you know, are in some ways kind of inexcusable. But in terms of gross numbers, we're not dealing with with a, a particularly large number. 
I was joking the other day um, and, and said to somebody, um, if my goal was to save more lives, you know, I would probably better spend my time keeping people from tipping vending machines over on themselves to, you know, get the chip bag that didn't come out of the corkscrew dispenser or whatever, you know, get angry and they wiggle the machine trying to get it out and it falls over on them and crushes them. More people die in the United States from vending machines tipping over on themselves than in MRI. So let's, if you don't have a fear about going and getting, you know, candy bar out of the vending machine, you probably shouldn't have a fear of going into MRI. Right. But if if I can just interject for a minute, when I lived in California, you get all kinds of warnings about attaching your furniture to the wall. If it's tall and it could tip over, I mean, it seemed like a vending machine makers or installers. I mean, I know they would say, well, you shouldn't be (laughs) rattling the machine, (laughs) right? but it seems like it could be, that could be prevented. You know, I mean, human nature is people are going to rock the machine. Right. To some right. One of the, the important distinctions for me in terms of, you know, people who die by tipping the vending machines over on themselves and people who are injured or die in an MRI environment is we all understand how gravity works, right? We're, we are assuming some degree of autonomy and responsibility if we're going and shaking sure. the, the vending machine, right? And, and that's really more solely the result of one person's action. Exactly, right. So in the MRI environment, the, the thing that makes me so enamored of MRI, the thing that makes me describe it as the closest thing to magic is what makes it so difficult to understand from from the patient's perspective right we don't expect the patient to understand you know you have abc implant you know of this particular variety implanted in this part of your body and we're going to be imaging this other part of your body and so therefore it is a risk or it isn't a risk or we're going to modify the study in the following ways to manage those risks or it would be grossly unfair to put a layperson in that position where they have to have responsibility over the decisions to keep them safe. So, whereas the vending machine example, it's one person who's responsible beginning to end for the whole event in an MRI environment, that is not the case. And the person who is most likely to be injured is the person who has the least knowledge and control over that situation, which, in my mind, transfers all of that responsibility onto the provider of the service of the care, right? That it's the hospital, the imaging center, the physician's office that needs to assume the responsibility for the whole enchilada, right? They are responsible for soup to nuts, everything um, associated with this episode of patient care, right? Yes, we turn to the patient, we have them fill out the screening form. And so we ask for information from the patient to inform that process. But the execution of that process and the responsibility for keeping the patient stay safe, you know, falls with the, the institution and, and the individuals who are, who are delivering care. Um, right. One of the things that that grinds my gears when we see accidents like um, if you go and you Google the, the the woman who shot herself in the butt, you know, because she brought her pistol into the MRI, you will see language used over and over again in depictions of that accident and other accidents where they talk about, you know, it was a freak event, right? Um, you know, as if, you know, God came down and pointed his finger at this particular patient care episode and and created this. They're not freak events. Um, They are not some sort of inescapable stochastic risk of of dealing with patient care. Do I believe that, you know, if you make make something idiot-proof, they'll come up with better idiots? Yes, I do. I think human beings will continuously try and find new and inventive ways to short-circuit, circumvent processes, right? And we cannot anticipate all of the the potential downstream um, responses to a, a risk mitigation step. Does that mean that we shouldn't take the risk mitigation step because we can't foresee all of the circumventions that, that somebody might take? 
Absolutely not. So this this idea that, you know, this fatalistic, uh, you know, stuff's going to happen, you know, is just that and and the, you know, it's a freak event that nobody could have anticipated. No, we anticipate these things all the time. Both of those, the, the fatalistic and, and hand of God sort of explanations for this just absolutely make me crazy, right? But if you go back and you look at depictions in the popular and trade press about MRI accidents, and you remove any kind of framing or contextualization of hand of God or, you know, fatalistic, you know, well, this is just going to happen. You remove all of those references and you're really left with no choice but to scratch your head and go, well, if we know this can happen, why don't we prevent it from happening? Mm -hmm. And before coming back to that real quick, I mean, the, the, the numbers around harm, I mean, are there, are there dozens of incidents a year, roughly speaking, hundreds, and I'm sure there's underreporting, especially of near misses. Right. So the U.S. FDA um, has what's called the MDR Medical Device Reporting Database. Um, you and I, we can actually go online and we can view it. We can search it. It's called the MAUD database. M-A-U-D-E. If you Google MAUD FDA, it'll send you right to it. MAUD is some horribly tortured acronym. Um, so the way that medical device reporting works in the United States is an accident happens at a point of care, right? And what, if we don't kill the person at the point of care, um, then what's supposed to happen is the hospital or physician practice or imaging center is supposed to let the manufacturer of the MRI device know. And then the manufacturer of the device is supposed to supposed to report this to um, the FDA. So if the site or the hospital, you know, sort of sweeps it under the rug, if it's not something that we need to call in a service call, or even if it is something that we need to call in a service call to repair because we broke something important on the MRI, as long as we don't tell the service engineers that somebody was injured in that accident, then this vital link in the chain to to share the information about the event doesn't happen. And the whole process is essentially short-circuited from at the very beginning, right? Um, So a little over 10 years ago, Dr. Canal, who I mentioned earlier, he and I did a, a, a research paper on how do MRI accidents occur? Um, how do we prevent them? How can how comfortable are we in quantifying? To your specific question of are, are we dealing with tens or hundreds or whatever in the FDA database, there are today probably on average between 150 and 200 um, MRI classified adverse events. Uh, per year in in the FDA database. So Dr. Kanal and I um, did an evaluation. Um, State of Pennsylvania has mandatory adverse event reporting only for hospitals, um, but they collect the data from from hospitals. Then they don't make it all public, but episodically they're like, they pick a special issue, a a specific topic, and they will publish a year, year and a half's worth of reporting data on that topic. And so Pennsylvania had published, um, I think, 18 months of um, MRI adverse event reports that came into um, Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. We were like, this is a golden opportunity. We're going to compare adverse event reporting to the state of Pennsylvania, which is mandatory, against national reporting over the same time period. And the numbers in the state of Pennsylvania were 90% of the FDA's number for the entire year, for the entire country, right? So the Pennsylvania numbers um, only came from hospitals with mandatory reporting. And at that time, almost exactly 50% of MRI imaging was done in an outpatient setting. So we're like, okay, so if we take this number and double it, we're probably somewhere close to the actual number for the entire state of Pennsylvania across all providers. 
state of Pennsylvania is that was at the time uh, roughly five percent of the U.S. population. So if we population correct for that, so we multiply times twenty, so we double it based on provider type. Multiply times twenty for population correction to begin to get an estimate across the entire United States. When we did that, the U.S. FDA number represents two percent of what the Pennsylvania data modeled out to a national level um, reflects, um, which would suggest that we're actually looking at somewhere between seven and eight thousand. Um, MRI adverse events in the United States in any given year. Um, and over time, that number appears to be increasing. And not only is it increasing, but it also appears to be increasing at a substantially faster rate than we're growing MRI procedure volume. So if MRI procedure volume is growing at 10% per annum, um, the accident rate is actually growing somewhere between 25 and 30 percent per annum. Um, so we are headed in the wrong direction. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of connections to general broader patient safety themes around underreporting of near misses and, and, and harms that seems to circumvent the opportunity to learn. I mean, you know, aviation while very, it's become very, very safe, I think because of, I'm generalizing, doing a better job of learning from past incidents very broadly, not repeating this this incident uh, in Japan will will be learned from in ways that lead to system improvements, communication improvements. I'm, I'm much more confident about that than I am of the, the learning that might come from a widely reported healthcare safety incident. And so, you know, there's, there's some we advocate for um, broader mandatory non-punitive reporting. And that part yes. there, the non-punitive part seems to be, um, seems to be key. And then, you know, there's, there's the discussion around the numbers and, you know, what grinds my gears um, is when, you know, you go off of estimates, sort of like you were walking us through here with MRI safety incidents, um, healthcare doesn't report the real numbers. And then when clinicians and researchers do their best to estimate it, well, people poo-poo the, the estimates. Like, well, if you'd give us real numbers, but either way, you know, whether it's 44,000 deaths a year or 440,000 deaths a year, when so many of these are preventable, any any of those numbers are, are too high. And I don't want to be fatalistic about, well, what can we do about it? We got to keep answering that question. Sorry, end of end of speech. But I mean, well, well to your point, um, the 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 reporting mechanism that exists through the U.S. FDA is is not a patient safety reporting system. It is a regulatory compliance. It is has this device that the FDA has approved is the device causing more problems than we thought it was going to cause, right? It, it, it's it's a device-centric regulatory compliance mechanism. Right. It is right. not a patient safety mechanism. Yeah. And, and the problem is not the device. Right, so exactly. There's a weird overlap yeah. of we have these process problems to report. Exactly. Where, where there may, in fact, be other, you know, medical devices about which the FDA legitimately has concern, you know, this device is a bad device, right? And, and I... We've all seen stories of, of things along those lines. That historically has not been the case with MRI. It is about the process. It is about point of care decision-making and patient safety. So this reporting mechanism that we have, while it may be perfectly appropriate to sort of a regulatory compliance regime, it is, number one, not patient safety focused. And number two, even if it was, the information that it collects is so generified that it has no relevance really to MRI safety specifically. Um, some colleagues and I actually, uh, we just launched this uh, a handful of weeks ago. Um, we developed an MRI specific adverse event reporting system. It's called CARE Reporting, C-A-I-R-E. 
reporting.org. Um, and it is an MRI specific adverse event reporting structure. Um, the idea being uh, if we actually we do exactly what you described, what you were talking about with this, the, the Japanese Coast Guard um, crash, you know, plane collision on the on the runway. Um, if we act like the MRI safety NTSB and we collect the information, we digest it, we identify what the points of failure were, and then we share that information out. In, in an anonymized fashion, right? This is this is not name and shame. This is this is not about pointing fingers and laughing at individuals or organizations. This is the only way that we are collectively going to to you know raise the floor is if we share information about how things go badly, and as long as there. There are all sorts of incentives to, to bury these things. The mechanisms that exist for reporting are, you know, core fits for 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 MRI. Um, we don't actually ask for the types of information that illuminates the the unique, um, you know, hazard properties of of MRI. As long as all of those things continue to be true then we're never going to get the information that helps us QAQC um, our ability to act safely um, in and around these, you know, complicated, expensive, and, and clinically extraordinarily, extraordinarily valuable pieces of equipment. Right. Right. Uh, so Toby, maybe just one final question before we wrap up and there's, there's an endless list of other things I, I I would love to ask you, but maybe I'll leave it just to one more question, or it's actually to ask for you to, to talk about something that's on your website that stands out to me. And I think there are strong parallels to, um, to lean thinking, especially when it comes to, um, you know, with uh, the late Paul O'Neill, uh, who was CEO of Alcoa and a healthcare safety advocate talked about, you know, false trade-offs. And, you know, as you say on the website here, if you've been told that MRI safety only comes at the expense of throughput, you've been lied to. That we, we can have both safety and throughput, right? Yes. And and so waiting for an opportunity to circle back around to your very opening where you said we're probably not going to talk about lean, you know, over the course of the conversation. Um, th this is the perfect bookend. Um Absolutely, lean is essential to um, MRI safety. Um, whether you call it lean or not, but you need to recognize that um, integrating safety practices, risk management practices, this is not this is not just sort of slapping layers on a process. Um, many sites do it that way, and I argue against that and, and suggest that, you know, that you're not helping yourself uh, by doing that, but by re-engineering the process so that you take into account and consideration um, the, the financial realities um, of, of where we are in, in MRI and, and what is the reimbursement. And we really can't afford to be offering services at, at a significant loss for the majority of our patients, right? So we need to recognize the financial realities. We need to look at, you know, how do we maximize revenue? How do we effectively constrain costs while at the same time recognizing that there are risks and risk management absolutely has to be a central part of designing or redesigning a process. Um, it's, it is so easy to essentially come in with some sort of, you know, checklist sticker that you slap on the wall and you always do these 12 things, right? If those 12 things don't recognize who the patients are, what the equipment is, what the clinical needs are, who the referring physicians are, what the reimbursement structure is, if you don't understand and embrace the entire operational model, and you just come in and superimpose these extra 12 things that folks are supposed to do, absolutely, that goes against the, you know, normal operations and, and efficiencies or productivities that are built in. 
Um, and that is sort of the worst example of risk assessment, risk management um, that that is easy to implement. Um, and yet the costs associated with implementing in that fashion are just astronomical. When it comes to MRI, apart from patients not showing up or not showing up on time, the single biggest delay in throughput and productivity is MRI safety-related questions or concerns. If we are smarter, if we have better processes for managing that 35 to 40% of the patient population that have some kind of compli complication or contraindication, right? One of those shows up at our doorstep and we don't have the training or the process to, to effectively manage it. Our entire process, our entire throughput productivity is going to grind to a screeching halt until we figure out how to deal with this atypical, unusual, unanticipated patient condition, right? Which means all of the infrastructure, all of the capital investment is now just sort of sitting idle and costing us money, right? Whereas if you have effective processes, if you have effectively trained individuals at the point of care, managing patient care, um, and you look at that situation, you're like, I know exactly what to do in that situation, right? Now, all of a sudden, there is no delay. If sites actually quantified how much delay, how much drag there is on their throughput and productivity, strictly because of MRI safety questions, and then extrapolated out what the cost of that missing patient care time is over the course of a quarter, a year, the 10-year lifespan of an MRI scanner, those costs are exorbitant. I mean, the amount of money that sites lose on a given year um, simply because they don't have smart and effective integrated processes for safety sort of built into the way that they operate. It is the idea that we're only going to improve safety at the cost of productivity or throughput is so backwards to the the average state of the average, you know, MRI provider in the United States. Almost always, um, I can go into a site, improve safety, and improve their productivity and throughput. Um, and and when you look at what the, the the economic implications of that are over mm -hmm. a significant chunk of time, yeah. Um, yeah. it's huge. Yes, and I think if a team is still doing this work in a way where the safety steps are slowing down throughput. That just means we haven't figured out how to do it the better way yet. Right. And, you know, I think whether it's Paul O'Neill or a quote unquote, lean sensei would challenge people to say, well, don't, don't say it can't be done in a way that breaks the trade off. You just haven't figured it out yet. Not to be Pollyanna about things, but it's just, that's the challenge. You have to figure it out and be, creative and redesign things instead of just adding triple checks right on top of things. And just kind of final thought that comes to mind, uh, John Grout, who's a professor who studied uh, Toyota and he's in, in, in particular an expert on mistake proofing. And he's published uh, a great book. It's uh, available free through AHRQ on mistaking healthcare. And, and he says quite definitively, um, good mistake proofing doesn't slow down the process. Right. And it's very possible to have good mistake proofing that doesn't slow you down. So we just, I think, hopefully that provides some inspiration to somebody to, to kind of get past that assumed it always has to be this way trade-off. Yes. Yeah. Because yes, there probably are discrete things that, you know, should get introduced that might have sort of a slowing contribution to, to the overall process. But that's one thing that might add a little bit of a slow, you know, for an effective risk management result. But that one thing that slows things down is usually going to be coupled with five, six, eight, ten things that are going to cut steps out or cut delays out um, and allow for the care for more patients, the more effective and efficient way to get patients through. So many hospitals today are just absolutely hung up on their Presgany, you know, patient satisfaction scores. Um, 
how satisfied do you think the patient is when they take off from work and they show up for their exam and you tell them, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do it because we don't have the information that allows us to do the risk assessment, right? So you're shooting yourself in the foot six different ways when you don't effectively manage these patients with the complications and contraindications. Um, you're not making use of your personnel. You're not you know, utilizing the capital equipment. You're aggravating the patients. You're aggravating the referring physicians. All of these things. You improve the process, which should innately include the safety aspects of it. And you're going to improve all of those things um, because inefficiency in the way we handle safety is such a, a point of friction in patient care in MRI today. Mm. Mm. Well, Toby, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing um, to, to, to shed light on the issue and to help people um, in, in MRI um, settings, hospitals, and otherwise uh, improve safety um, for all. And I want, I want to thank you for, for being here today. I feel like this is a, a very rich topic. I feel like we just scratched the surface a little bit, but I would encourage uh, the listener to um, you know follow Toby on uh, LinkedIn, Tobias Gill. Uh, you can find him there. Um, go check out his website. There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, thank you. You know, I just want to thank you for uh, agreeing to do the conversation here today. This has really been enlightening. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.